Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the unsolved murder of Bob Crane. So Robert Edward Bob Crane, who was born July 13th of 1928, and was killed June 29th of 1978, was an American actor, drummer, radio person, personality and disc jockey known for starring in the CBS situation comedy Hogan's Heroes. Crane was a drummer from age 11 and he began his entertainment career as a radio personality first in New York City and then in Connecticut. He then moved to Los Angeles where he hosted the number one rated morning radio show. In the early 1960s, Crane moved into acting, eventually landing the role of Colonel Robert Hogan in Hogan's Heroes. The series aired from 1965 to 1971 and Crane received two Emmy Award nominations. Crane's career declined after Hogan's Heroes. He became frustrated with the few roles that he was being offered and began performing in dinner theatre. In 1975, he returned to television in the NBC series The Bob Crane Show, but the series received poor ratings and was cancelled after 13 weeks. Afterward, Crane returned to performing in dinner theatre and also appeared in occasional guest spots on television. The reason for him not being in a lot of other TV shows and appearances and so forth was the fact that Bob Crane had a long-standing fetish of videotaping himself and his female sex partner, of which there were many over the years in various stages of sexual acts. It was rumours of this kind of activity, as well as other penchants, like playing drums at various topless bars in LA, that purportedly cost Crane many TV and movie acting gigs. Apparently, the story was that producers were fearful of having this screen product associated with such a two-sided man. It was also interesting to note that Bob Crane, while having trouble finding other roles and doing this back-breaking dinner theatre work, had he lived, he would have received a lot of money. Now, according to Robert Graysmith, Bob was paid different to his co-stars because while the others got paid for their roles, Bob actually had a piece of the Hogan's Heroes show, and had he lived, by 1990 he would have received 25% of $90 million, which would have been equal to about $22.5 million in 1990s money, or $51 million in today's money. Bob thought at the time that he was poor. But he apparently he had had a hundred thousand dollars embezzled from him, so he's out doing this backbreaking work, which really cost him his life in the end. When there was no reason for him to be doing this, within a year of his death, he would come into twenty-five percent of Hogan's Heroes. That's the profits. Now Warner Klemperer and and uh, John Banner, and Robert Clary, all the other co-stars of Hogan's Heroes, they were paid for the first six appearances, as was the style in, in, at the time the show was filmed. But Bob actually had a piece of the show, and had he lived. Uh, by 1990, he would have had 25% of $90 million. That's what had come in by then. Now, Don Adams, interestingly enough, who played the lead role of Maxwell Smart and Get Smart, also talked about how he had the same type of offer. You see, when Get Smart began, Adams passed up an offer of $12,500 a week in favor of a percentage of the show's profits, which in turn made him lots of money, as Get Smart was an instant success, just like Kogan's Heroes. However, these types of choices can be risky, because if the show isn't a hit success, you may not get paid much at all. 
Now, Adams later said it was the smartest decision he'd ever made due to how much money he made, although the show Get Smart had the caveat effect of typecasting him in the role afterwards, which made finding other work difficult. I looked at the script and I said, boy, this is really a wild script. But I didn't know whether it was going to be a success or not. The 41-year-old Adams was a betting man, so he took the role and the biggest gamble of his life. They said, do you want to take a big salary or do you want to take a piece of the show? I said, what do you call a big salary? They said, $12,500 a week. I said, what do you call a small salary? They said, $4,000 a week. Something in his nature said, I have to go for the gamble here. If it's a hit and I take a piece of the show, I'm going to have an annuity for the rest of my life. And so <laughs> it's the best business decision I ever made in my life. Now, Crane was found bludgeoned to death in his Scottsdale, Arizona apartment while on tour in June 1978 for a dinner theatre production of Beginner's Luck. The homicide remains officially unsolved. His previously uncontroversial public image suffered due to the suspicious nature of his death and promiscuous revelations about his personal life. In 1950, Crane began his career in radio broadcasting at WLEA in Hornell, New York. He soon moved to Connecticut stations WBIS in Bristol and then WICC in Bridgeport. A thousand watt operation with a signal covering the northeastern portion of the New York metropolitan area. In 1956, Crane was hired by CBS Radio to host the morning show at its West Coast flagship KNX in Los Angeles, California. Partly to re-energize the station's ratings and partly to hold his erosion of suburban ratings at WCBS in New York City. In California, Crane filled the broadcast with sly wit, drumming, and such guests as Marilyn Monroe, Frank Sinatra, and Bob Hope. His show quickly topped the morning ratings with adult listeners in the Los Angeles area, and Crane became king of the Los Angeles airwaves. Crane's acting ambitions led to guest hosting for Johnny Carson on the daytime game show Who Do You Trust, and appeared on The Twilight Zone, unaccredited, Channing, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and General Electric Theatre. After Carl Reiner appeared on his radio show, Crane persuaded Rena to book him for a guest appearance on The Dick Van Dyke Show. In 1965, Crane was offered the starring role in a television sitcom set in a World War II POW camp. Hogan's heroes involved the sabotage and espionage missions of Allied soldiers led by Hogan from under the noses of the oblivious Germans guarding them. The show was a hit, finishing in the top 10 in its first year. The series lasted for six seasons, and Crane was nominated for an Emmy Award in 1966 and 1967. After having an affair with co-star Cynthia Lynn, the actress who played Helga, Crane became romantically involved with Lynn's replacement, Patricia Olsen, in 1968, who played Helga, under the stage name Sigrid Villidis. Crane divorced Terzian in 1970, just before their 21st anniversary, and married Olsen on the set of the show later that year, with Richard Dawson serving as best man. Their son, Scotty, was born in 1971, and they later adopted a daughter, Anna Marie, Crane and Olsen separated in 1977, but according to several family members, had reconciled shortly before Crane's death. Now, another intriguing aspect about Hogan's Heroes was there was some animosity between Richard Dawson, who played Corporal Newkirk, and Bob Crane, who played Colonel Robert E. Hogan. Because Dawson had auditioned for the role of Colonel Hogan, but still had an English accent, and the producers wanted someone all-American, and Dawson was said to be very bitter that he didn't get the role. Dawson also loved to play pranks on set, but when it came down to actually doing the work, he acted very professionally and expected the same from everyone, and Bob Crane was described as a little bit too laid back when it came to working. 
Now we get to Crane's private life and his eventual murder. Now, Crane frequently videotaped and photographed his own sexual escapades. During the run of Hogan's Heroes, Dawson introduced him to John Henry Carpenter, a regional sales manager for Sony Electronics who often helped famous clients with their radio equipment. Now, the two men struck up a friendship and began going to bars together. Crane attracted many women due to his celebrity status and he introduced Carpenter to them as his manager. Crane and Carpenter videotaped their joint sexual encounters. Crane's son Robert later insisted that all of the women were aware of the videotaping and consented to it. However, some said that they had no idea that they had been recorded until they were informed by Scottsdale police after Crane's murder. Carpenter later became national sales manager at Aiki and he arranged his business trips to coincide with Crane's dinner theatre touring schedule so that the two could continue videotaping their sexual encounters. On Wednesday, June 28th of 1978, after completing an evening performance and signing autographs for fans in the lobby, Crane returned briefly to his Scottsdale, Arizona apartment with a longtime friend, Los Angeles video equipment sales clerk John Carpenter. Before Crane and Carpenter headed out on the town, Patricia called Bob, and according to Carpenter, the estranged couple argued loudly on the phone. Thereafter, Crane and Carpenter adjourned to a local bar where they had drinks with two women whom they had arranged to meet. At about 2am, the quartet went to the Safari Coffee Shop on Scottsdale Road. About half an hour later, John Carpenter left to pack for his return trip to Los Angeles the next morning. Back at his hotel room, he called Crane one final time. Crane was allegedly considering ending his lifestyle of heavy partying and was therefore tired of hangers-on like Carpenter. During his last phone call, Bob reportedly told Carpenter that their friendship was over. Now, Crane's beginners like co-star Victoria Berry would knock on Crane's door at the Winfield Place Apartments at around 2pm on June 29th. The front door to his apartment, 132A, was closed but unlocked. Berry would enter the apartment and find the entire apartment dark. As she entered the bedroom, she said... And I quote, At first I thought it was a girl with long dark hair because all the blood had turned real dark. I thought, oh, Bob's got a girl here. Now where's Bob, I thought. Well, she's doing something to herself. Bob's gone to get help. At the time, I recognized the blood. It was like a strange feeling, end quote. Upon closer examination and realizing what exactly she was seeing, Barry thought, and I quote, the whole wall was covered from one end to the other with blood, and I just sort of stood there and I was numb. Bob was balled up in a fetal position lying on his side, and he had a cord wrapped around his neck, which was tied with a bow. Which is interesting thing to note, because in a documentary about this case during the discussion about whether or not Patty Olson was involved in the murder, it was brought up about the electrical cord being tied in a bow like a woman would tie one, even though it's not in a bow in any of the crime scene pictures. Now, Victoria had mentioned it being tied in a bow when she found the body, but for some reason it's unbowed by the time the crime scene photos were taken, which is a little bit strange. Crane's body was found lying on its right side atop a queen-size bed, clad only in boxer shorts, and wearing a wristwatch. Two parallel gashes were above and behind the left side of his head that left a fan of blood across the ceiling. The wall behind the top of the head and nightstand lamp were also covered in blood. Human tissue was on the wall. The bedsheets and pillowcase were soaked with blood. There were no physical signs that a struggle had taken place and the autopsy determined that Bob Crane was asleep when the deadly blow to the left side of his head 
was delivered. The subsequent police investigation had determined that Crane's head was struck by two separate parts of a camera tripod, inflicting two separate and deadly wounds. Paulette Cassetta, the first Scottsdale police officer to arrive on the scene, immediately secured the area with crime scene tape. At approximately 3pm, Scottsdale Police Lieutenant Ron Dean arrived at Crane's apartment and took over the investigation. Initially, investigators summarised the killer was someone Crane knew, perhaps a person who left the apartment before the incident and later returned through the unlocked front or, or perhaps a window that had been purposefully left unlocked or open. The Maricopa County Medical Examiner was able to pull together a partial chronology of events of that evening. Sometime during the early hours of Thursday, June 29th, while Crane was sleeping on his right side, the murderer would strike a deadly blow to the left side of Crane's head with some type of heavy blunt instrument. A second, much lighter blow would crush Bob Crane's skull, likely killing him immediately. For some unknown reason, the perpetrator likely then tied an electrical cord tightly around the actor's neck but by that time Crane was already dead. Before fleeing the scene, the killer would apparently wipe the blood from the murder weapon using the bed sheets and then pull the sheet up over Crane's head. Money was found in Crane's wallet, which likely eliminates robbery as a motive. Now, approximately 50 pornographic videotapes were found at the Winfield apartment, as well as professional photography equipment in the bathroom for developing and enlarging still shots. A negative strip was found in the enlarger, revealing a woman in both clothed and nude poses. What was most interesting, though, was that a hefty album of similar pornographic pictures was missing from the death scene. Several items that police declined to identify were missing from Crane's little black bag, a small multi-zipped carrier that he always carted around with him. Now, Victoria Berry had seen it when she first discovered the body but it later disappeared and was never accounted for. Now that's one thing that every time that you hear about this case is, is one thing that's never actually really brought up is this little black bag that Crane had and I'm interested to know what exactly was in it that was missing the police refused to identify because it's interesting how it just disappears and was never accounted for. What was in the black bag that was so mysterious that it suddenly had to go missing? Now it's it was never really stipulated whether it went missing because the police lost it, which they have lost evidence in this case, through no fault of their own. We're only human. People make mistakes. People misplace things. People lose things. I mean, this is in 1978. I mean, police procedure back then is a lot different to what it is nowadays. Just look at some of the cases I've covered, such as the freeway phantom. You know, things that police officers used to do back then, they don't do those sort of things now. It's a lot more rigid. The paperwork, evidence, the trail or the chain of evidence is a lot more stringent than it was back then. But I'm curious because this little black bag that Crane allegedly had, nobody really talks about about it and it's, it's, it's an interesting piece because it's like well if Victoria Berry saw it why was it never accounted for and how did it just disappear and what was in it that was so mysterious that the police would not identify it during the investigation, and this is another interesting piece as well, John Carpenter told police during an interview that right before the murder, Crane showed him a book of Polaroid snapshots of naked women, including some he met at the dinner theatre. Police were unable to find it in Crane's apartment. It was only one of two things that was missing. The other was a camera tripod from the apartment, which showed no signs of forced entry. Now, to police, what caught their attention was, how did he know it wasn't there unless he had been there and seen it missing? Now, this was never explained, and John Carpenter never gave an explanation for how we would know that something was missing, because how would he know that it wasn't there if he hadn't been to the apartment? Like, how would he know that it wasn't there? It's kind of like, it's kind of one of those guilty knowledge pieces of information, because how would you know if something was missing, and how would you be able to give a detailed explanation of something that's missing? It's kind of like, well, you would have had to have been at the crime scene, and you would either have had to have taken it yourself and gotten rid of it, or you would have had to have been 
there and looked around and gone, oh, that's missing. Okay, then that, that photo album's missing. Oh, must make a mental note of that. He volunteered to take a polygraph lie detector test. Uh, and the county attorney said that probably wouldn't be a good idea at this time because we don't have enough information yet to, you know, to ask him the proper questions and, and look for the proper responses. And he said there's a photo album and he described it in detail for us, how it opened up and how the pictures flipped up. And he said that, you know, that would be something to look for. Well, you know, I, how would he know that it wasn't there it was my question. And uh, I always thought that that was his red herring, that, you know, let me throw this into the, into the works here so <clears throat> the cops will think whoever killed him, killed him because of a picture in that album. And, you know, maybe the husband of one of his girls or, or something along that line. Another odd thing was he also made mention in the same interview about Bob always urinating after he had had sex because in his mind he believed it lessened his chances of contracting venereal diseases. Now to detectives this felt to them like it was almost him saying an admission that he knew that there was semen on Bob Crane's leg otherwise why would Carpenter think this would be important for the police detectives to know about that? The strange thing was, he says, remind me about urination after you ask all the questions. I want to talk about urinating. So we asked him the questions that we wanted to ask him. And then he uh, said, okay, uh, Mr. Carpenter, what, what did you want to say about urinating? He says, well, it, it's, I think it's important to know that Bob always said that after he had had a jump, that he would always soon thereafter go and urinate because that lessens the chance of contracting VD and so he would always urinate uh, after he had you know had sex and uh, that to me was almost an admission uh, he's saying something now that you know why would this why would he think this would be important to us unless he knew there was some semen on on Crane's leg there was also the, the friend of Bob Crane's who claimed that she knew the exact time of death when Crane died, which people found strange because how is it that she knew such specific details about the crime? Now, she subsequently left town apparently fearing for her life and completely vanished. She hasn't been seen since. It was speculated that she knew who the murderer was and because of that had been killed and her body disposed of, but that was never proven. Carolyn Beret is the last known person to have been with Bob Crane while he was alive. She was a blonde woman that he had met there. Um, she accompanied him and John Carpenter and Carol Newell uh, at the safari where they had uh, their, their breakfast. Um, uh, Carolyn Beret is interesting because for many, many years, um, she had said that uh, she knew that uh, Bob Crane had been murdered at uh, roughly 10 a.m. in the morning. She then left town. She felt that she was, uh, you know, in fear of her life. At 8 a.m. on June 30th, Deputy Medical Examiner Dr. Thomas Jarvis performed the autopsy on Bob Crane. Crane was just 49 years old. He would have turned 50 in two weeks. The type of death is listed as violent, the manner by blunt instrument in court. The abnormal findings, abundant dry blood on face, hair, and upper chest. The autopsy report also noted a flaky white dry material on the pubic hair, right lower abdomen and right interior thigh, likely semen though it was never tested. Police later theorized that the killer may have masturbated over Crane's dead body after the killing, a final fuck you to the victim. 
it was just a theory, but the semen was never tested. According to former Scottsdale police officer Dennis Birkenhagen, who was present for the autopsy, along with Lieutenant Ron Dean, he asked for the semen to be collected. Now, according to Birkenhagen, Jarvis dismissively said, what's that going to tell you? That he had a piece of ass before he was killed? End quote. And that was the end of that. And the semen, to my knowledge, was never collected. Now, see, today, if the semen had been collected and we had a sample, or even when John Carpenter was taken to trial, all they would have had to do would get John Carpenter's DNA, which didn't exist back in 78. All they had was blood typing, which tells you what type of blood you've got, A, B, A, B, R, H, negative, or O. Back then, that's all they had. Today, or even in 1990, all they would have had to have done would have been to have compared the semen samples from Bob Crane with his own DNA sample. If they matched, boom, you could have nailed John Carpenter's ass to a wall because then he would have to explain how his semen ended up on Bob Crane's body. If it didn't match, well, then obviously you've got to look at, well, who did Crane have sex with? The fact that you've got semen on the body would either lead me to believe that it was a male that masturbated on Crane's body after death, which is a pretty horrific thing to do, and pretty sick and twisted thing to do, or it was somehow Crane had sex with a girl, their DNA got mixed up in the semen, and you'd find two bits of DNA. If it was a male, you'd only find male DNA, but if there was female DNA mixed in the fluids, then you would find two separate DNA profiles. So what I'm wondering is, was it even semen though? And then if it wasn't semen, well, what the hell was it? Well, we don't know because they never collected it. The other thing I'm curious about is why the, the medical examiner or coroner basically told the police, well, we're not going to collect it. Again, as I said before, back in those days, things were a lot different. I mean, they didn't have DNA. They didn't know back in the day that semen would be able to be like a digital fingerprint. They didn't know that back in 1978 because DNA wasn't a thing. I think DNA didn't come out until I think it was first used if I remember correctly in the 1980s in, in the UK I know it was first used in the UK and then in the 1990s it became a big it became a big forensic breakthrough it was like a, a big revolution in forensic science when DNA became a thing didn't mean that it was a smoking gun and that it was 100% correct I mean there are cases that have been destroyed by DNA because there are false positives false negatives same things with fingerprints nothing's foolproof so if it was semen and it was linked to John Henry Carpenter, case closed. Because then Carpenter has to explain how come he's got his semen on Bob Crane's dead body. Which would be a very interesting thing to explain to the police exactly how your semen ended up on a dead body. Basically put Crane and Carpenter in the room about the time that Crane died. But the fact that the medical examiner acted the way he did, it's kind of like, well why is it that the medical examiner was able to overrule the police? That's something I've always found really weird about the case was when I, so there's a documentary, which I'm going to play excerpts in this podcast, that there were bits and pieces where he was talking about how like the medical examiner refused to collect it. I'm surprised they didn't push a little bit harder to try and get the, the DNA collected. I'm a little bit kind of curious as to why, I'm a little bit curious as to why they didn't do that. And I find it hard to believe that the medical examiner would be able to overrule what the cop says. It's kind of, I find that really hard to believe. But then again, being the time period they were in, they probably just thought, oh, well, it's semen. You know, what's that going to tell you? As as Borkenhagen said, you know, in the clip I'm going to play, he just basically said, well, what's that going to tell you? Apart from he got some sex before he died. So it, it kind of shows you the attitude that law enforcement and medical examiners had back then in regards to what different bodily fluids and functions would could tell you. Today, it would tell you yes or no, this person did or didn't do it. It would be like a digital fingerprint. 
so the thing is, was it from Crane? Was the white flaky semen from Crane? Was it from the killer? Well, we'll never know for sure. There appeared to be semen on Bob Crane's, I don't know now if it was his right or left thigh, but at autopsy it was still there. And I asked if they would collect the semen. And the medical examiner's investigator said, what's that gonna tell you besides you had a piece of ass? And they refused to collect it. Almost from the time Crane's body was discovered in his bedroom of the Winfield Place Apartments, now condominiums in Scottsdale, authorities made critical mistakes that later undermined their case. For starters, Scottsdale police failed to adequately secure the crime scene. They allowed his co-star, Victoria Berry, into the apartment to answer the phone several times, potentially contaminating the crime scene. In addition, the Maricopa County Medical Examiner climbed over Crane's body and shaved his head to examine the fatal wound. Then there's the bloodstains found on the front curtains, where it is theorized that the murderer stood and looked outside at some movers who'd arrived at 4am to start a job, since that's the only time in June in Arizona that it's cool enough to do heavy moving. The killer allegedly waited, trapped inside until he saw the movers were busy, and then slipped away. There's also a hearsay story that the movers said they saw a man walking away from Bob's apartment, and that the man looked like Carpenter, but there was no other mention of the story or of the movers. There's also a red hearing presented about an alleged phone call from Victoria Berry at 2am reminding Bob of their appointment the next day. On Bob's nightstand was the phone, his glasses, and his appointment book open to the next day with a pen nearby. Victoria claims she never called Bob, but someone said they saw her on the phone at 2. Also in the appointment book, it was written down that she had called. The other missing piece of evidence was the murder weapon, which to this day has never been found. Although it was highly speculated and later circumstantially proven to be a camera tripod as a second one was missing from Crane's apartment. Only one tripod was found at the murder scene and it was not the weapon used in the crime. Bob Crane's son stated that and I quote, the police investigators maintained that my dad had had two tripods set up in the apartment's living room for video still and possibly 8mm cameras to photograph posing playmate wannabes and close encounters of the cocktail waitress kind, end quote. A Phoenix Police Department criminologist inspected a bedsheet from the crime scene and figured out that a bloody mark on it had been made by a tripod, not a tire iron, golf club, or fire poker. The murder weapon was unknown. Uh, I mean, there were theories that it was tire irons, uh, pipe, uh, many things came up. Nothing actually panned out. Uh, when I observed the sheets uh, from the bed firsthand, uh, from the Scottsdale uh, evidence room, I observed the tool marks on the sheets. And I noticed that it was in a V shape and I suspected possibly a tripod at that point. I took the sheets, I located a very similar tripod uh, and I took that to a forensic expert by the name of Raymond Giesel, uh, who was with the Phoenix Police Department at that point in time and asked him if he would examine these items and see if there were, he could make any sense out of it. And uh, about two days later, he called and asked me to come to his lab. I did. Uh, when I walked in, he had the sheet uh, spread out on a table and he laid the tripod on it and it was an absolute perfect match. Not only did the legs match and the, the neurals matched, but the, uh, the head of the tripod actually matched the wound. 
Now, in the days following the killing, a thin three-inch smear of blood was collected from the padding near the top of the passenger door of Carpenter's Chrysler Corboda rental. A lab determined the blood sample was type B, which was Crane's blood type, which only one in seven people have. Carpenter was not one of those seven, and police also determined that no one had bled in the car. In addition, a 1 16th inch speck of fatty tissue or brain matter was also visible on the same door panel near the blood sample. The new theory held that the missing tripod was the blunt instrument used as the murder weapon, and that the blood in Carpenter's rental car had dripped from where he had leaned it against the car door. A key piece of evidence was a photograph of tissue thought to be from Crane's skull, but the actual sample was never produced. It was said to have been lost over a period of time. Now, mind you, I called the Department of Public Safety and said, where is this tissue? Uh, and they couldn't find it. They, it had been lost over a 12-year period there somewhere it had been lost. With today's forensics, the case would likely have been solved in less than 24 hours, and it probably would have been turn out the lights, the party's over for John Henry Carpenter, which I do actually agree with. The other very odd thing about the rental car that John Carpenter had in his possession at the time of the murders was that when he returned it, he made a huge fuss about wanting the car cleaned up and put in a complaint about the vehicle's electrical systems, which police found out about later when they went about tracking down the rental car, which is suspicious in and of itself. I mean, my question is, why was Carpenter so insistent about the car being removed and cleaned unless he knew the police would be looking for it? The police described the Scottsdale apartment as a very passionate murder scene and not a mafia hit. A blunt instrument had been wielded with enough anger to kill Crane with two blows. Now, cops named Carpenter as the prime suspect who had the means, opportunity, and the physical strength to have inflicted the fatal blows, but they couldn't come up with a motive. However, what was interesting to note was that cops suspected Carpenter was gay and had been spurned by his one-time close friend. Videotapes revealed Carpenter making love simultaneously to the the same woman as Crane. Now we're going to move on to John Henry Carpenter. So John Henry Carpenter, born April 24th of 1928 and died September 4th of 1998, was an American video equipment salesman most widely known as the friend and accused murderer of actor Bob Crane in 1978. Now Carpenter was of Native American and Spanish heritage. He was born on the Morongo Band of Mission Indians Reservation, where as a teenager he often earned money as a migrant worker harvesting apricots. Carpenter served in the U.S. Army and was married twice. Following his retirement from the Army, he took a job marketing video technology, achieving expertise in that field, and becoming the head of the video wing of a new Japanese electronics company debuting in the United States called Sonycom, later to be simply known as Sony. John had a child, John Michael Carpenter, from his first marriage who was adopted with the last name of Merrill. John Carpenter had three grandchildren from his first marriage and six great-grandchildren. Now, during the run of Hogan's Heroes, Richard Dawson introduced Crane to Carpenter, a region sales manager for Sony Electronics, who often helped famous clients with video and audio equipment. The two men struck up a friendship and began going to bars together. Now, Crane attracted women due to his celebrity status as well as handsomeness and introduced Carpenter as his manager, as I stated before. Now, later, they would videotape their sexual encounters, while Crane's son, Robert, later insisted that all the women were aware of the videotaping and consented to it. Some, according to one source, had no idea that they had been recorded until informed by the Scottsdale police after Crane's murder. Carpenter later became national sales manager at Aki and arranged his business trips to coincide with Carpenter's dinner touring schedule so that the two could continue seducing and videotaping women after Hogan's Heroes had run its course. 
He became the primary suspect in the case of Bob Crane's death the night before Crane's murder. Carpenter was sitting with Victoria Berry at the Windmill Theatre. She would join him during her set breaks and Barry claims that after the show ended, she witnessed Crane and Carpenter exit the building together and proceed to Crane's car, where Crane would call out to her to not forget their appointment the next day. As Berry was writing her official statement to the police in Crane's kitchen at around 3.15pm, the phone rang. Lieutenant Dean instructed her to answer the phone, but not to mention anything about Bob Crane. It was John Carpenter calling from LA. The police lieutenant took the phone from Barry, properly identified himself, and instructed Carpenter that the police were in Crane's apartment investigating an incident. During the phone call, Carpenter told Lieutenant Dean he had been out with Crane the previous evening until around 1am. Carpenter would later change that time to 2.45am. Then he went on to say that he had driven by himself to the airport later that morning for his return flight to LA. Carpenter would call Crane's apartment again at 3.30pm. Lieutenant Dean mentioned in his report that he found it odd that Carpenter never asked anything more about the incident and didn't ask him where Crane was. At the time in 1978, the Scottsdale Police Department did not have a homicide division unit, so Lieutenant Dean's chief case officer, Dennis Borkenhagen, began the death investigation himself at Crane's apartment, but later decided that no items of any value had been taken during the crime. He did observe some blood smears on the inside of the front door and entranceway, but decided there was no forced entry. The sliding glass door that led from Crane's apartment to the swimming pool area outside was discovered unlocked. The police interviewed some of Crane's colleagues and friends, discovering that although Crane was personable, charming, and fun to be around, he had made enemies. There was also a fellow actor who'd argued with Crane in Texas and had sworn vengeance, and inevitably and unsurprising, given Crane's reputation with the ladies, there were numerous angry husbands and boyfriends. Still, Carpenter remained the prime suspect. Some who had been interviewed claimed that Crane's relationship to Carpenter had begun to show some strain, though actual evidence of any rift was not readily available. Any physical evidence that might have tied Carpenter to the crime were also scarce, as was the motive that would have compelled him to murder his best friend. But the possibility of a loan and one bit of compelling evidence, however slim, seemed to point to Carpenter. Rumours flourished that Carpenter had borrowed some $15,000 from Crane. Crane may have been demanding repayment, Perhaps even more compelling, the police discovered a small blood smear on the passenger side door of Carpenter's rented vehicle. Carpenter had complained about a problem with the electrical wiring with the car and it had been sent for repairs at the Phoenix dealership. Scottsdale detective Darwin Barry inspected the vehicle and claims to have noticed a small amount of dried blood in the interior. His commanding officer Dean ordered the car towed to the DPI compound in Phoenix. The car was examined and photographed by criminologist Bruce Bergstrom of the Arizona Department of Public Safety. Bergstrom's job was to find and process any blood or tissue found inside the car. And it was there that the investigation phase of the case began to fall apart even before it really got started. Lots of suspicion was cast on Carpenter due to his quick exit from Scottsdale. Things he left behind in Bob Crane's apartment like his swimming trunks, his desire to have his rental car with the incriminating bloodstains fixed, and his phone calls back to Bob's apartment the next afternoon where he didn't seem concerned that the police were answering the phone. There are people seen loitering. There's a red-haired guy that was a suspect. There's the angry husband connected, by the way. To, uh, to the mob, who's angry at Bob, who's been bothering his wife. There's a red-haired woman. There's a woman that looks like Patty, his wife, and their son, Scotty, who's at the front door one morning, who's seen. Uh, just so, it's very, very complex to lay this out. But gradually, Bob is swept along by fate till it comes to that last evening. Now, every time Bob Crane stayed in a hotel, or a motel, whatever it is, this is the Winfield Apartments, John Carpenter stayed with him. There were unusual things happening that last day of his life. John did not stay with him. 
He had to stay somewhere else. The date did not go well. John goes home without him. That night, and this is the part I think as a mystery that I like about the Bob Crane case. He's in the apartment, Bob double locks everything. He'd been robbed in Chicago. He makes sure nobody's coming there. He's an extraordinarily light sleeper. There are things in that apartment that should have been there that weren't. There were things that were in that apartment that shouldn't have been there at all. And among the things that should not have been in that apartment were whiskey. Bob was a teetotaler. There was beer. There's John Carpenter's swimming trunks that were supposed to go back with him to Los Angeles. Cigarettes Bob did not smoke. Um, anyway, I thought there was a treasure trove of evidence that were there, but what was missing, some of the albums were gone, that Bob had these pictures. Now this leads you to believe there's something in those albums that's incriminating. There are videos that are gone. There is in the projector that somebody overlooked Pictures of a woman in various stages of undress that the killer did not remember to take. The blood that was found in John Carpenter's car was eventually tested and was determined to be type B. Coincidentally, the same blood type as Bob Crane's. Carpenter's blood was the more common type A blood. Type B blood is only found in slightly more than 10% of the population. Though the presence of the same blood type in Carpenter's car was suspicious, blood type was not a good measure of positivity identifying a victim. Remember, this was before DNA testing. There was also one other very interesting event that happened that no one ever really got to the bottom of, although a lot of people have tried. Now, according to Robert Graysmith, on the night of Crane's last performance, a flat tire caused by a tampered valve stem is suspected to have been intended to strand Crane alone in the club's dark parking lot. Him and John Carpenter are there, and it was pitch black. However, Crane rode on the flat tire to a gas station, and when the attendant looked at that tire, he realized it had been tampered with and took the tire to show somebody because he thought something was up, and that this had been deliberately done, which I agree with. They were deliberately trying to strand him in the parking lot. I'm convinced of it. The other thing I thought was intriguing, that Bob Crane, just before his death, is in the parking lot of the Windmill Theater. It's pitch black, and this car doesn't start. And later, they look at this tire. The valve core has been tampered with. Somebody was trying to strand him in that parking lot. He and John Carpenter are there. But Bob, one of the things that made him delightful, he's unpredictable. He gets into this car. He takes off toward the lights of the faraway service station, riding on the, on the flat tire. Well, the guy is looking at it, and he realizes uh, at the station, this thing's been tampered with. And the station attendant actually took that tire, replaced it, and kept it because he was going to show it to the police. He thought something was really up, and I think so too. I think that was the second warning for Bob Crane. In 1992, determining that tissue collected in Carpenter's rental car matched that found at the murder scene, investigators reopened the murder case. Additionally, investigators determined that Crane had been beaten with a second tripod that was not found at the murder scene, but was featured in many of the videos. The county attorney's officer determined there was enough evidence to try Carpenter for the murder of Bob Crane, so the case went to court in 1994. But following a two month long trial, Carpenter was acquitted and would die four years later, totally maintaining his innocence in the death of Bob Crane. Now we move forward to the trial of John Henry Carpenter. So in 1994, Crane's murder case was reopened and Carpenter was tried and eventually acquitted of that case. As a result of the accusation, he was fired from work as a national service manager of the electronics firm Kenwood USA. He always maintained his innocence and later said he felt a huge relief after his name had been cleared. One jury member later said in an interview that the jury believed there was insufficient proof to determine Carpenter's guilt and that, and I quote, you cannot prove someone guilty on speculation. 
end quote. Carpenter's acquittal was spearheaded by defense attorney Dan Roth. The law offices of Roth and Roth were located in Scottsdale, Arizona. Carpenter's acquittal subsequently propelled Roth's reputation as one of Arizona's most sought-after defense attorneys. Now, at the 1994 trial, Crane's son Robert testified that in the weeks before his father's death, Crane had repeatedly expressed a desire to sever his friendship with Carpenter. He said that Carpenter had become a hanger-on and a nuisance to the point of being obnoxious. My dad expressed that he just didn't need Carpenter's kind of hanging around him anymore, he said. Robert testified that Crane had called Carpenter the night before the murder and ended their friendship. Carpenter's attorneys attacked the prosecution's case as circumstantial and inconclusive. They presented evidence that Carpenter and Crane were still on good terms, including witnesses from the restaurant where the two men had dined the evening before the murder. They quoted that the murder weapon had never been identified nor found. The prosecution's camera tripod theory was sheer speculation. They said based solely on Carpenter's occupation. They disputed the claim in the newly discovered evidence photo showed brain tissue and presented many examples of sloppy work by police, such as the mishandling and misplacing of evidence, including the crucial tissue sample itself. They pointed out that Crane had been videotaped and photographed in sexual relations with numerous women, implying that any one of them might have been the killer. Other potential suspects proposed by defense attorneys included angry husbands and boyfriends of the woman and an actor who'd sworn vengeance after a violent argument with Crane in Texas several months earlier. While he was acquitted of murder, Carpenter did have a mark on his record, which I found very interesting, because around 1993, he pled no contest to the sexual fondling of a 10-year-old girl, and it was indicated there was more than one. His plea agreement left him with no jail time and went down as a misdemeanor instead of a felony. John Carpenter died September 4th of 1998, always maintaining his innocence, although the speculation had all but ruined his life. After the trial, Robert speculated publicly that Olsen, his father's widow, might have had a role in instigating the crime. Quote, Nobody got a dime out of the murder, he said, except for one person, alluding to Crane's will, which excluded him, his siblings, and his mother, with the entire estate left to Olsen. He repeated his suspicions in the 2015 book Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder. Maricopa County District Attorney Rick Romley responded, and I quote, We never characterized Patty as a suspect adding, I am convinced John Carpenter murdered Bob Crane, end quote. Officially, Crane's murder remains unsolved. Now we get into later DNA testing. So, in November of 2016, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office permitted Phoenix Television reporter John Hook to submit the 1978 blood samples from Carpenter's rental car for retesting, using a more advanced DNA technique than the one used in 1990. Two sequences were identified, one from an unknown male, and the other two degraded to reach a conclusion. This testing consumed all of the remaining DNA from the rental car, making further tests impossible. Hook's investigation turned up two blood vials, samples from Crane and Carpenter, located in evidence storage at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office. Carpenter voluntarily gave a sample to Scottsdale Police when he was questioned in 1978. Do you understand these rights? I understand the rights the way you read them. My question to you is that prior to an agreement on these rights here, what I was under the impression Correct me if I'm wrong before I make my statement to you that I was coming here to help you out, not put me in. <laughs> and I'm really very apprehensive about this. If I should continue since your statement in California was that you implied and directly told me that I had had direct contact with Bob Crane's death. Yes. In fact, we'll get what I need from you will you voluntarily answer my question. No. Reading from this rights card, you now understand, and you've been uh, questioning. Uh, can you stop 
voluntarily answering my question? You understand? You can get up and walk out like that. Crane's blood vial was recovered during his autopsy the day after the murder. Both were used as comparison samples for Hook's DNA tests on the bloodstains found in Carpenter's rental car, performed by Bode Selmark Labs. Now we come to autofocus. So Crane's life and murder were the subject of the 2002 film Autofocus, directed by Paul Schrader and starring Greg Kinner as Crane. The film, based on a book on Crane's murder written by Zodiac author Robert Graysmith, was described as brilliant by critic Rob Roger Erbert. The film portrays Crane as a happily married, church-going family man who succumbs to Hollywood's celebrity lifestyle after becoming a television star. When he meets Carpenter, played by William Defoe, and as a result of their friendship, learns about the then-new home video technology. He then descends into a life of strip clubs, BDSM, and sex addiction. Crane's son with Olsen Scotty challenged the film's accuracy in an October 2002 review. Quote, During the last 12 years of his life, he wrote, Crane went to church three times, when I was baptized, when his father died, and when he was buried. His son further stated that Crane was a sex addict long before he became a star, and that he may have begun recording his sexual encounters as early as 1956. There was no evidence, he said, that Crane engaged in BDSM. There was no such scenes in any of his hundreds of home movies, and Schrader admitted that the film's BDSM scene was based on his own experience while writing the film Hardcore. Before production on Autofocus was announced, Scotty and Olsen had shopped the rival script alternatively titled F-Stop, or take off your clothes and smile, but interest ceased after autofocus was announced. In June 2001, Scotty launched the website bobcrane.com. It included a paid section featuring photographs, outtakes from his father's sex films, and Crane's autopsy report that proved, he said, that his father did not have a penal implant as stated in autofocus. The site was renamed Bob Crane the official website, but is now abandoned. The official Bob Crane website was maintained by CMG Worldwide. The website no longer exists. Crane's funeral was held on July 5th of 1978 at St. Paul the Apostle Catholic Church in Westwood, Los Angeles. An estimated 200 family members and friends attended, including Patty Duke, John Ashton, and Carol O'Connor. Pallbearers included Hogan's Heroes producer Edward Feldman, co-stars Larry Hovis and Robert Clary, and Crane's son Robert. He was interred in Oakwood Memorial Park in Chatwoods, California. Patricia Olson later had his remains relocated to Westwood Village Memorial Park in Westwood, and she was buried beside him in 2007 under her stage name, Sigrid Veldis. Though the full truth of the unsolved murder will probably never be known, rumours abound that a boyfriend or husband of one of Crane's female co-stars is the culprit, not John Henry Carpenter. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remains unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I have covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time next on unanswered questions however despite being quiet unassuming people they'd been the subject to a campaign of harassment which began in 1984